Chapter 11, Part 2. Then he turned his attention to embroideries and to the tapestries that performed the office of frescoes in the chill rooms of the northern nations of Europe. As he investigated the subject, and he always had an extraordinary faculty of becoming absolutely absorbed for the moment in whatever he took up, he was almost saddened by the reflection of the ruin that time brought on beautiful and wonderful things. He, at any rate, had escaped that. Summer followed summer, and the yellow jonquils bloomed and died many times, and nights of horror repeated the story of their shame, but he was unchanged. No winter marred his face or stained his flower-like bloom. How different it was with material things. Where had they passed to? Where was the great crocus-colored robe on which the gods fought against the giants that had been worked by brown girls for the pleasure of Athena? Where the huge valerium that Nero had stretched across the Colosseum at Rome, that titan sail of purple on which was represented the starry sky, and Apollo driving a chariot drawn by white, gilt-reined steeds? He longed to see the curious table napkins wrought for the priest of the sun on which were displayed all the dainties and viands that could be wanted for a feast. The mortuary cloth of King Chilperic with its three hundred golden bees. The fantastic robes that excited the indignation of the Bishop of Pontus and were figured with lions, panthers, bears, dogs, forests, rocks, hunters, all, in fact, that a painter can copy from nature and the coat that Charles of Orleans once wore, on the sleeves of which were embroidered the verses of a song beginning, Madame, je suis tout joie, the musical accompaniment of the words being wrought in gold thread, and each note, of square shape in those days, formed with four pearls. He read of the room that was prepared at the palace at Reims for the use of Queen Joan of Burgundy, and was decorated with 1,321 parrots, made embroidery and blazoned with the king's arms, and 561 butterflies, whose wings were similarly ornamented with the arms of the queen, the whole worked in gold. Catherine de' Medici had a morning bed made for her of black velvet powdered with crescents and suns. Its curtains were of damask, with lethe wreaths and garlands figured upon a gold and silver ground, and fringed along the edges with broideries of pearls, and it stood in a room hung with rows of the queen's devices in cut black velvet upon cloth of silver. Louis XIV had gold-embroidered caryatides fifteen feet high in his apartment. The state bed of Sobieski, king of Poland, was made of Smyrna gold brocade embroidered in turquoises with verses from the Koran. Its supports were of silver gilt, beautifully chased and profusely set with enameled and jeweled medallions. It had been taken from the Turkish camp before Vienna, and the standard of Mohammed had stood beneath the tremulous gilt of its canopy. And so, for a whole year, he sought to accumulate the most exquisite specimens that he could find of textile and embroidered work, getting the dainty Delhi muslims, finely wrought with gold-thread palmates and stitched over with iridescent beetles' wings, the daca gauzes, that from their transparency are known in the East as woven air, and running water, and evening dew. Strange figured cloths from Java, 
elaborate yellow Chinese hangings, books bound in tawny satins or fair blue silks, and wrought with fleur-de-lis, birds and images, veils of lace worked in hungry point, Sicilian brocades and stiff Spanish velvets, Georgian work with its gilt coins and Japanese fukusei with their green-toned golds and their marvelously plumaged birds. He had a special passion also for ecclesiastical vestments, as indeed he had for everything connected with the service of the church. In the long cedar chests that lined the west gallery of his house, he had stored away many rare and beautiful specimens of what is really the raiment of the Bride of Christ, who must wear purple and jewels and fine linen, that she may hide the pallid, macerated body that is worn by the suffering that she seeks for and wounded by self-inflicted pain. He possessed a gorgeous cope of crimson silk and gold-thread damask, figured with a repeating pattern of golden pomegranates set in six-petaled formal blossoms, beyond which on either side was the pineapple device wrought in seed pearls. The ophrays were divided into panels representing scenes from the life of the Virgin, and the coronation of the Virgin was figured in colored silks upon the hood. This was Italian work of the 15th century, Another cope was of green velvet, embroidered with heart-shaped groups of acanthus leaves from which spread long-stemmed white blossoms, the details of which were picked out with silver thread and colored crystals. The morse bore a seraph's head in gold-thread raised work. The orphreys were woven in a diaper of red and gold silk and were starred with medallions of many saints and martyrs, among whom was St. Sebastian. He had chasubles also of amber-colored silk and blue silk and gold brocade and yellow silk damask and cloth of gold figured with representations of the Passion and Crucifixion of Christ and embroidered with lions and peacocks and other emblems, dalmatics of white satin and pink silk damask decorated with tulips and dolphins and fleur-de-lis, altar frontals of crimson velvet and blue linen and many corporals, chalice veils and suduria. In the mystic offices to which such things were put, there was something that quickened his imagination. For these treasures and everything that he collected in his lovely house were to be to him means of forgetfulness, modes by which he could escape for a season from the fear that seemed to him at times to be almost too great to be born. Upon the walls of the lonely locked room where he had spent so much of his boyhood, he had hung with his own hands the terrible portrait whose changing features showed him the real degradation of his life, and in front of it had draped the purple and gold pall as a curtain. For weeks he would not go there, would forget the hideous painted thing and get back his light heart, his wonderful joyousness, his passionate absorption in mere existence. Then, suddenly some night, he would creep out of the house, go down to dreadful places near Bluegate Fields, and stay there, day after day, until he was driven away. On his return he would sit in front of the picture, sometimes loathing it and himself, but filled at other times with that pride of individualism that is half the fascination of sin, and smiling with secret pleasure at the misshapen shadow that had to bear the burden that should have been his own. After a few years, he could not endure to be long out of England, and gave up the villa that he had shared at Trouville with Lord Henry, as well as the little white Walden house at Algiers, where they had more than once spent the winter. 
He hated to be separated from the picture that was such a part of his life, and was also afraid that during his absence, someone might gain access to the room, in spite of the elaborate bars that he had caused to be placed upon the door. He was quite conscious that this would tell them nothing. It was true that the portrait still preserved, under all the foulness and ugliness of the face, its marked likeness to himself. But what could they learn from that? He would laugh at anyone who tried to taunt him. He had not painted it. What was it to him how vile and full of shame it looked? Even if he told them, would they believe it? Yet he was afraid. Sometimes, when he was down at his great house in Nottinghamshire, entertaining the fashionable young men of his own rank, who were his chief companions, and astounding the county by the wanton luxury and gorgeous splendor of his mode of life, he would suddenly leave his guests and rush back to town to see that the door had not been tampered with, that the picture was still there. What if it should be stolen? The mere thought made him cold with horror. Surely the world would know his secret then. Perhaps the world already suspected it. For, while he fascinated many, there were not a few who distrusted him. He was very nearly blackballed at a West End club of which his birth and social position fully entitled him to become a member. And it was said that on one occasion, when he was brought by a friend into the smoking room of the Churchill, the Duke of Berwick and another gentleman got up in a marked manner and went out. Curious stories became current about him after he had passed his 25th year. It was rumored that he had been seen brawling with foreign sailors in a low den in the distant parts of Whitechapel, and that he consorted with thieves and coiners and knew the mysteries of their trade. His extraordinary absences became notorious, and when he used to reappear again in society, men would whisper to each other in corners, or pass him with a sneer, or look at him with cold, searching eyes— as though they were determined to discover his secret. Of such insolences and attempted slights, he, of course, took no notice, and in the opinion of most people, his frank debonair manner, his charming boyish smile, and the infinite grace of that wonderful youth that seemed never to leave him, were in themselves a sufficient answer to the calumnies, for so they termed them, that were circulated about him. It was remarked, however, that some of those who had been most intimate with him appeared after a time to shun him. Women who had wildly adored him and for his sake had braved all social censure and set convention at defiance were seen to grow pallid with shame or horror if Dorian Gray entered the room. Yet these whispered scandals only increased in the eyes of many his strange and dangerous charm. His great wealth was a certain element of security— Society, civilized society at least, is never very ready to believe anything to the detriment of those who are both rich and fascinating. It feels instinctively that manners are of more importance than morals, and, in its opinion, the highest respectability is of much less value than the possession of a good chef. And, after all, it is a very poor consolation to be told that the man who has given one a bad dinner or poor wine is irreproachable in his private life. Even the cardinal virtues cannot atone for half-cold entrees, as Lord Henry remarked once in a discussion on the subject, and there is possibly a good deal to be said for his view. For the canons of good society are or should be the same as the canons of art. Form is absolutely essential to it. 
It should have the dignity of a ceremony, as well as its unreality, and should combine the insincere character of a romantic play with the wit and beauty that make such plays delightful to us. Is insincerity such a terrible thing? I think not. It is merely a method by which we can multiply our personalities. Such, at any rate, was Dorian Gray's opinion. He used to wonder at the shallow psychology of those who conceive the ego in man as a thing simple, permanent, reliable, and of one essence. To him, man was a being with myriad lives and myriad sensations, a complex, multiform creature that bore within itself strange legacies of thought and passion, and whose very flesh was tainted with the monstrous maladies of the dead. He loved to stroll through the gaunt, cold picture gallery of his country house and look at the various portraits of those whose blood flowed in his veins. Here was Philip Herbert, described by Francis Osborne in his memoirs on the reigns of Queen Elizabeth and King James, as one who was caressed by the court for his handsome face, which kept him not long company. Was it young Herbert's life that he sometimes led? Had some strange poisonous germ crept from body to body till it had reached his own? Was it some dim sense of that ruined grace that had made him so suddenly, and almost without cause, give utterance in Basil Hallward's studio to the mad prayer that had so changed his life? Here, in gold-embroidered red doublet, jeweled surcoat, and gilt-edged ruff and wristbands, stood Sir Anthony Sherrod, with his silver and black armor piled at his feet. What had this man's legacy been? Had the lover of Giovanna of Naples bequeathed him some inheritance of sin and shame? Were his own actions merely the dreams that the dead man had not dared to realize? Here, from the fading canvas, smiled Lady Elizabeth Devereux in her gauze hood, pearl stomacher, and pink slash sleeves. A flower was in her right hand, and her left clasped an enameled collar of white and damask roses. On a table by her side lay a mandolin and an apple. There were large green rosettes upon her little pointed shoes. He knew her life and the strange stories that were told about her lovers. Had he something of her temperament in him? These oval, heavy-lidded eyes seemed to look curiously at him. What of George Willoughby, with his powdered hair and fantastic patches? How evil he looked. The face was satyrine and swarthy, and the sensual lips seemed to be twisted with disdain. Delicate lace ruffles fell over the lean yellow hands that were so overladen with rings. He had been a macaroni of the eighteenth century, and the friend in his youth of Lord Fairs. What of the second Lord Beckenham, the companion of the Prince Regent in his wildest days, and one of the witnesses at the secret marriage with Mrs. Fitzherbert, how proud and handsome he was with his chestnut curls and insolent pose. What passions had he bequeathed? The world had looked upon him as infamous. He had led the orgies at Carlton House. The star of the garter glittered upon his breast. Beside him hung the portrait of his wife, a pallid, thin-lipped woman in black. Her blood also stirred within him. How curious it all seemed— and his mother, with her Lady Hamilton face and her moist, wine-dashed lips, he knew what he had got from her. He had got from her his beauty and his passion for the beauty of others. She laughed at him in her loose dress. There were vine leaves in her hair, 
The purple spilled from the cup she was holding. The carnations of the painting had withered, but the eyes were still wonderful in their depth and brilliancy of color. They seemed to follow him wherever he went. Yet one had ancestors in literature as well as in one's own race— nearer, perhaps, in type and temperament, many of them, and certainly with an influence of which one was more absolutely conscious. There were times when it appeared to Dorian Gray that the whole of history was merely the record of his own life, not as he had lived it in act and circumstance, but as his imagination had created it for him, as it had been in his brain and in his passions. He felt that he had known them all, those strange, terrible figures that had passed across the stage of the world and made sin so marvelous and evil so full of subtlety. It seemed to him that in some mysterious way their lives had been his own. The hero of the wonderful novel that had so influenced his life had himself known this curious fancy. In the seventh chapter, he tells how, crowned with laurel, lest lightning might strike him, he had sat as Tiberius in a garden at Capri, reading the shameful books of Elephantus while dwarves and peacocks strutted round him and the flute player mocked the swinger of the censer, and as Caligula had caroused with the green-shirted jockeys in their stables and supped in an ivory manger with a jewel-frontleted horse— and as Domitian had wandered through a corridor lined with marble mirrors, looking round with haggard eyes for the reflection of the dagger that was to end his days, and sick with that ennui, that terrible tedium vitae that comes on those to whom life denies nothing, and had peered through a clear emerald at the red shambles of the circus, and then in a litter of pearl and purple drawn by silver-shod mules been carried through the street of pomegranates to a house of gold and heard men cry on Nero Caesar as he passed by, and as Elagabalus had painted his face with colors and plied the distaff among the women and brought the moon from Carthage and given her in mystic marriage to the sun. Over and over again Dorian used to read this fantastic chapter and the two chapters immediately following— in which, as in some curious tapestries or cunningly wrought enamels, were pictured the awful and beautiful forms of those whom vice and blood and weariness had made monstrous or mad. Filippo, Duke of Milan, who slew his wife and painted her lips with a scarlet poison that her lover might suck death from the dead thing he fondled. Pietro Barbi, the Venetian, known as Paul II, who sought in his vanity to assume the title of Formosus, and whose tiara, valued at 200,000 florins, was bought at the price of a terrible sin. Gian Maria Visconti, who used hounds to chase living men and whose murdered body was covered with roses by a harlot who had loved him. The Borgia on his white horse, with fratricide riding beside him and his mantle stained with the blood of Perotto. Pietro Riario, the young cardinal archbishop of Florence, child and minion of Sixtus IV, whose beauty was equaled only by his debauchery, and who received Leonora of Aragon in a pavilion of white and crimson silk, filled with nymphs and senators, and gilded a boy that he might serve at the feast of Hylas. Ezelin, whose melancholy could be cured only by the spectacle of death, and who had a passion for red blood, as other men have for red wine. The son of the fiend, as was reported, and one who had cheated his father at dice when gambling with him for his own soul, 
Giambattiste Cibo, who in mockery took the name of Innocent, and into whose torpid veins the blood of three lads was infused by a Jewish doctor. Sigismondo, Melatesta, the lover of Isota, and the lord of Rimini, whose effigy was burned at Rome as the enemy of God and man, who strangled Polissina with a napkin and gave poison to Ginevra d'Esti in a cup of emerald, and in honor of a shameful passion built a pagan church for Christian worship. Charles VI, who had so wildly adored his brother's wife that a leper had warned him of the insanity that was coming on him, and who, when his brain had sickened and grown strange, could only be soothed by Sarsian cards, painted with the images of love and death and madness. And, in his trimmed jerkin and jeweled cap and acanthus-like curls, Griffonetto Bagolini, who slew Astora with his bride, and Simonetto with his page, and whose comeliness was such that, as he lay dying in the yellow piazza of Pergia, those who had hated him could not choose but weep, and Atalanta, who had cursed him, blessed him. There is a horrible fascination in them all. He saw them at night, and they troubled his imagination in the day. The Renaissance knew of strange manners of poisoning, poisoning by a helmet and a lighted torch, by an embroidered glove and a jeweled fan, by a gilded pomander, and by an ember chain. Dorian Gray had been poisoned by a book, there were moments when he looked on evil simply as a mode through which he could realize his conception of the beautiful. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.